Hello and welcome to Things Musicians Don't Talk About with your hosts Hattie Butterworth and me Rebecca Toll. Within our vibrant musical world it can often feel that the struggles and humanity of the musicians is lost and restricted. Having both dealt in silence with mental, physical and emotional issues, we are now looking for a way to voice musicians' stories, discuss them further and to connect with the many others who suffer like we have. No topic will be out of bounds as we are committed to raising awareness for all varieties of struggle and hope to do so with some fantastic guests along the way. So join me, Hattie and guests as we attempt to bring an end to stigma by uncovering the things musicians don't talk about. again for another episode thank you so much for all of the wonderful support and feedback for our episode of Ellie Conster from her ensemble I can't believe how much fun we had making that episode so today Rebecca and I are together speaking with the concert pianist Claire Hammond Claire won the Royal Philharmonic Society's Young Artist Award in recognition of outstanding achievement in 2016 and prior to this studied at Cambridge University and then at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama with Ronan O'Hara. Contemporary music is at the core of Claire's work and she's given over 50 world premieres including those of major works by composers Kenneth Hesketh, Ariane Sierra, Robert Saxton and Michael Barclay. It was just honestly incredible listening to Claire speak about her experiences. We speak today about Claire's journey with generalised anxiety disorder and postnatal depression. Um, I first came across Claire in an interview she did with Music Plus, which is another really awesome podcast that I urge you to go and listen to, which is run in collaboration with Classical Music UK. Um, and she spoke about her experiences on that and I was just, uh, I remember just feeling like the biggest gratitude that she spoke in the way she did about her experiences with depression and anxiety because so many of them really resonated with me and interviewing her and speaking with her in this conversation was, if anything, even more incredible because we just we managed to cover so many elements to managing a mental illness and performing alongside it. I cannot say thank you enough to Claire because normalising conversations like this is basically my ultimate life goal, <laughs> I suppose. And Claire has just made that dream into a reality through this episode. I have no greater pleasure than introducing our conversation with Claire Hammond. Welcome, Claire. It's so lovely to have you with me and Rebecca today. We're just so, so excited to welcome you to the things musicians don't talk about. No, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Would you be happy, first of all, with maybe just introducing yourself to anyone who might not know you? Could you just like give us a bit of an overview of what you do musically and you know your life as a as a musician and soloist yeah of course um i'm a concert pianist i'm based in the uk and i tend to do i mean like everyone i do a combination of solo chamber and concerto work but with a focus often on unusual repertoire and that might be by just composers that we haven't heard of sort of from historical periods or um more contemporary music i've done a lot of new premieres over the past past decade or so just in terms of your musical education because we've had quite a lot of as we were talking about before we've had some of our friends on who are sort of fresh out of music college would you mind just saying how you got started with music and how you ended up where you are today yeah of course um my family weren't particularly musical I started when I was about six and I went to just a normal school not a specialist music school and then went to university initially to study maths at Cambridge, but I switched to music after a term. And when I'd done that, I went to do a master's and a DMA, a doctorate of musical arts, 
at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, and the doctorate was joint with City University. Um, and by the time I'd finished that, I'd been doing freelance concerts for a while, so it was just a question of rebuilding those up so that I was earning a living from it, <laughs> so, you know, doing, doing it full-time. I finished my doctorate about nearly 10 years ago now, it's quite a while ago, um, and I've been doing concerts since then. And you do um, concerts in prisons, is that right, as well? Yeah, that's right. So apart from my normal recital work and you know, chamber concerto stuff for seri concert series and festivals, I've been doing a lot more community work over the past few years. So we moved to Gloucestershire about four years ago, four or five years ago. And initially I started doing a lot of school concerts in the area because I wanted to put down groups locally. Um, we loved where we lived before, but I've used it very much as a commuter zone. And I realised that while that was fine and it worked for, you know, for all my work stuff, I didn't feel like I was making friends or putting down roots and I felt a bit, um, just a bit, uh, well, unmuted really, which I think is quite common among musicians. We're traveling so much that it's difficult to feel part of the community. So the school concerts were very much a way of doing that. And then we had, I had my second daughter, uh, she's about three and a half now, so three and a half years ago, and suffered very badly from postnatal depression after that. And that lasted for a long time. And when I was coming out of that, I decided that I wanted to do something that was sort of sort of contributing, I guess, in a more explicit way than I've been doing before. And um, so I started doing the prison concerts out of that. And they've they've grown and they've become a really important part of what I do for for me personally as well. Just mm. it's such a big kind of part of what we want to talk to you about, I think, because I have so many questions surrounding it about, you know, the logistics. How did you go about kind of thinking this is an idea that I hope will work and I want to be human with these people and I want to present myself as myself musically. And I mean, I think you wrote in the article you wrote for classical music um, that you didn't want to sort of patronise or dumb it down. You wanted to present it as it is. So how did you go about kind of, I suppose, persuading people that this was an initiative that would be a good, a good thing and a fulfilling thing for both them and for you? I guess there's two answers or two strands to that answer, really. Um, the first one is just logistical. So I, my husband had a friend who worked as a chaplain in one of the prisons. And initially I went through the chaplaincy to do my first concert. But there are lots of charities working in prisons. Mm -hmm. um, there's one in the southwest called Changing Tunes. And they go in on a more regular basis to do, say, weekly instrumental tuition and singing in groups with the prisoners. Um, and they do some really valuable work. And I've been doing a few concerts in association with them. So I would perform to people who were already enrolled on my courses, but then we also do concerts to the wider prison population. The sort of second answer to your question really is to do with how to present it. And I think the key word to keep in mind with these kind of concerts is to be authentic, um, both to yourself, but also authentic to the relationship that you have with your audience. One of the reasons I hadn't done prison concerts before I did, although I wanted to for a long time, is because I couldn't think of a way to go in and do it, to present the music in a way where I felt more sure that there would be a connection with people because prisons are such strange environments and there's such an imbalance of power between the people who are in prison there and between the staff and people who come in as visitors. And that makes it much more difficult to create the sort of natural and reciprocal relationship with the people there. When I'd been through the postnatal depression and I've had some really dark times with that, um, and sort of come out the other side, it suddenly became very obvious that one of the ways to present this music, which again is an extension of what I do in my normal concerts anyway, but it's more explicit with the prison work, is to really highlight the human side of the, um, of the composers and what they were trying to do with the music. And if the composers had difficult times in their life, if they suffered from mental illness, if they, if they um, had a particularly traumatic period in their life, then it really helps to mention that because then people listening can, you know, that suddenly the composers don't seem like they're from another time and place. They seem like real people living the same kind of lives that we do. And their music and the emotional force of their music suddenly has relevance and can really move people. And I've seen that happen so many different times in so many different contexts now, because all prisons are different and they all have different atmospheres and di different kinds of communities, depending on whether they're male or female or just on the culture within a particular prison. Music is always about communication, but I think we sometimes lose sight of that when we're worried about 
trying to present a technically perfect performance or trying to impress people. And actually, if you go into a prison and try and impress people, I think you probably wouldn't get a very warm reception because generally people can see through through that. Yeah. You've got to go in as as an equal with the people in there and just try and connect with them just on a human level. The prison environment tends to highlight the differences between the people who are in prison there and the people who come in from outside. But actually, it's so important to remember that we're all we're all human and we all experience the same kind of things. Mm. What's hitting me from what you say is like, in a way, as someone who suffered with mental illness, which both me and Rebecca has, the idea of being able to go into a prison and know, in a way, that you might be facing people that are almost guaranteed to have suffered in a similar way. Have you found at all that that has made you a freer performer? Or that, I mean, another question is, have you ever shared your own struggles with the with the inmates? Is that something that you've chosen to do? Yeah, I have. Um, not deliberately so. I mean, I don't go in with a plan really for these concerts. I have a certain idea of the kind of things I might talk about, but I tend to improvise much more than I would in a normal concert. And I do speak more than I would in a normal concert as well. Because um, I think that's important, particularly if you've got people who don't necessarily know the repertoire very well. Um, it's good to give them that kind of connection first. Um, but I do, I have spoken explicitly about the about my own experiences with mental illness, mainly actually in the women's prisons. There's a different kind of dynamic there, given that I'm female as well. Mm. Having experienced the mental illness, or well, some some elements of mental illness myself, it doesn't mean that I understand everything all of these people are going through because many if not most of them will have had far more well perhaps all of them will have had far more difficult things to experience in their lives than I ever have um but it just means that I suppose when you suffer from mental illness you have a much greater awareness of your own fallibility it's not possible to go through a serious bout of mental illness and still believe that you are um I'm trying to think of the right word, impregnable, but I'm not a fortress. <laughs> <laughs> but but when you've been through mental illness, you become much more aware of your infallibility and you can't put yourself on a pedestal then, especially in that kind of context. Mm. It just... So I also have a clearer awareness of how having been through those can give you strengths that you were never even aware could exist or that you might use. So, and again, it's... It sometimes helps, and I don't do this in every concert, but it sometimes helps to make that more explicit in in my introductions as well. If I talk about my own experiences or talk about composers and talk about sort of strengths that they found or ways that they found to express that through the music, mm. and that's often very powerful. But I, I do adapt it quite significantly depending mm. on the dynamic. Of the time. Can we go on to talk about your mental illness and mm. your experiences with that themselves? Because you have spoken about it incredibly before and I urge everyone to go and read the article I think it's on your website that you wrote yeah, for classical to, music if you go to clairehallam.com slash prisons um, there's information about my prison concerts and you can look at a pdf of the article there and I just I can't tell you like the bit that just struck me and I, I remember it stayed with me literally for a year was when you I think it's the very start of the article and you describe being on a platform, on a train platform, crying on the day of a concert. Um, and I think it struck me because I've had this that same experience like so many times. I've turned up at like an unknown town to give a concert and the feeling is like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I'm so low, you know, but I just somehow have to get through it. But I would just love if it would be all right for you to explain, you know, you've talked about postnatal depression, but I also read something about you had struggles with generalised anxiety as well. So yes, what have your kind of experiences with mental illness been, if you don't mind sharing? No, of course. Um, I think as an adult, I've always been generally quite an anxious person. I've always worked hard. I've always been very driven and I've been very bad at taking time off or cutting myself any slack. I'm very self-critical and perfectionist. And all of those characteristics became more and more intense as I got older and as I became more embroiled in this career because I mean you can't do what I do without some of those traits but there's also a massive danger that if you go too far it all but just becomes too much as it did for me so in my early 30s I found and that was quite an interesting stage actually 
I decided when I was about eight that I wanted to be a concert pianist and I spent my entire childhood and my teenage years desperately trying to aim towards this in my early 20s and for various reasons I was I was quite behind when I went to music college uh, when I was a master's student so I spent most of my 20s feeling that I had to catch up with my contemporaries by the time I got to my early 30s I finally felt like I caught up and that I was making a living from my music but at that stage I realized that although I was fairly established in one sense I wasn't actually enjoying what I was doing because I was pushing myself so hard and I wasn't streamlining programs for example I was doing different repertoire and lots of different concerts um, I wasn't organizing things in such a way that it made it as easy as it could be for me and the career itself is so demanding there's so much travel performing um, particularly when you're doing solo performance is is quite a scary thing to do and it's a very draining thing to do physically emotionally just in terms of your energy. Um, and when I realised that I wasn't enjoying it, that I'd finally got to a point that I'd been aiming at for my entire life and I was utterly miserable, that just seemed to trigger this, I, I wouldn't call it a breakdown, but because I, I still functioned, I don't know how exactly you define a breakdown, but it triggered this episode where I suddenly realised that I was, my anxiety was making me utterly miserable. So I went for um, cognitive behavioural therapy, the CBT, and that was really powerful for me at that time. And I worked really hard through that, and over a period of months I got much, much better, but then had my two daughters in quick succession. And again, the demands of um, parenthood, of producing babies physically, of feeding them and travelling and getting their sleep, I mean, those were all quite extreme. And I went back to work very quickly after I had the children, so, so that was another pressure. Um, and eventually, after my second daughter was born, about six months on, I realised that something was very, very wrong. And I, I've, I've covered some of this territory in the article, but I, I realised that absolutely everything I saw, heard or experienced, I would interpret in the most negative way possible. Um, and the closest um, parallel I can think of is if you think of the Dementors from Harry Potter, it was like I was, <laughs> I was, I was seeing life through a kind of Dementor filter. Mm. I just didn't have any way of seeing of interpreting any kind of data in an objective or rational way or seeing the positive side of anything. So I'd be holding my daughter who was a lovely, chubby, healthy, happy baby. And when I saw her cheeks, these lovely chubby cheeks, I'd just worry about how I'd feed her if there was a famine or I was continually obsessing about climate change. And all of these things are, I mean, climate change is a very legitimate concern, but the way that I was processing it was deeply unhealthy. And so I went to my GP and she diagnosed uh, postnatal depression um, and put me on medication. Now, I'd already had um, CBT for the anxiety a few years ago, so I sort of knew some of the territory in terms of what therapies were available. But at that stage, I was in such a state that I couldn't even begin to engage with therapy in any kind of productive way. So the medication was like a life raft, really, that just got me stable enough to start. And I went for CBT for a few weeks, but it just didn't. Um, stick in the way that it had done. This was a very different kind of problem. When I'd had the anxiety, a lot of the issues were to do with me misinterpreting certain stimuli and certain sort of objective events, but in a way that you could sort of fix by doing tables with evidence for and evidence against and make becoming getting to a more balanced perspective. Mm. And with the postnatal depression, by the time I'd worked out that there was a problem and was seeing, trying to get some treatment, my internal mental state had, was just was pretty terrifying really and I didn't really have a grasp on rational thought anymore um, in a way that was was deeply unnerving and very scary and what is interesting for me now looking back on that period is that I was still functioning I was still doing all my concerts I didn't cancel a gig for this I didn't I still managed to look after my children I needed lots of support from my husband who bore the brunt of this massively but it is possible to go through the motions and still be very, very unmoored inside to an extent that I'd never thought would be possible. So I actually went for therapy to someone who I didn't really belong to a particular school. It was just a sort of general talking therapy, but she was a very wise woman. And when we discussed some of the images that I had, I've never been a very visual person, but I had a very strong image that my mental state inside was, it was as if I was um, in this cavernous cave underground, very, very large cave. And there was a tall pillar coming up through the middle, a pillar of stone, 
with an area about four meters squared at the top and that was where I lived and the cave was very dark and I could they couldn't really see what was going on but I could sense these massive winged creatures swooping through this abyss within this cave and they were deeply threatening and it felt like I had my little enclosed area on top of this column and everything was under control I'm very I'm quite an obsessive person and I like to have things in order mm. and my little column was all functioning but beyond that was just completely unknowable dread filled um abyss really and that, that was it was quite terrifying at times but then I knew that from my experience with CBT before that as long as you keep taking a little step each day and it doesn't matter how insignificant it might seem at the time you can always build on that and you will eventually get out of it and I just had to cling on to that really and keep going but that was that was a really interesting period because I've always as I say I'm quite I like to be in control I've always worked very hard I've always viewed myself as generally quite a competent person but to feel that I'd suddenly lost lost contact with what is the basis of rational thought and what makes us I, I wouldn't say that humans are rational creatures but we do have a strong rational mm. element to us I mean yeah. that's how we function in society it's how we create our identities and that idea of being rational is a big part of my identity um and to lose that was was really unnerving so that was a very scary period but it has given me a very a much wider um perspective on the human psyche and I've been lucky that music actually has given me a way to to use that I suppose which sounds very very utilitarian but I can express that in music I can use that experience now to communicate with people in a different way than I could before I can use music in a much more powerful much more genuine and authentic way because I've had that experience so although it was utterly terrifying at the time and I wouldn't wish it on anyone I I do think that now that experience has become an integral part of who I am in a way that I experience as a positive thing now those kinds of experiences they're part of what makes us human and what makes us whole but it's just sometimes it's very difficult to feel that when you're tired or you're not or you're going through some at the time or mm. you know occasionally if I'm if I'm feeling a bit if I'm exhausted I might think oh, have I broken my brain forever like is this just yeah. going to be it for my life now <laughs> you know am I always going to be the anxious person with a tendency to have these really quite scary episodes but actually I you know throughout the pandemic I was it was interesting to for me to, to monitor my psychological state I was much more resilient than I had expected because I had these techniques from before to deal with it mm. and and I am much more aware now when those kind of episodes are you know are beginning to happen and I can I can stop them in a way that I couldn't so I think on balance I'm I'm much more resilient psychologically than I ever was and I have these new capabilities that I didn't have before um so I would urge anyone going through experiences like that to just keep that in mind like it feels utterly awful and it can feel very 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 scary at the time um but just focus on taking baby steps each day I think mm. and you know you will eventually build on that and find a way out well I mean first of all I'd just like to say that you are incredible an incredible inspiration yeah. like I just hearing you talk is just honestly such a huge honor Absolutely. to be able to talk to you about this <laughs> while you know the the worst of the suffering that you've gone through was happening did you I mean you said you know you could just go through the motions with music and just keep going did you find that at any point you were would just consider quitting like did, was it one of those things of like the music is something that you have to like just do because you you're committed to this concert or was it in any way helping how how did you view your music at that point it varied at different points so when I had the big episode with the generalized anxiety disorder in my early 30s I did seriously think about quitting um and actually went to see someone who's been a wonderful support and mentor throughout my career who is another professional pianist and um he said that he didn't have anyone seriously not thought about quitting at some stage <laughs> so it's not it's not it's not an unusual experience I mean it's it's uh, being a performer is is a massive privilege and it is a wonderful life in many ways and it's also an incredibly difficult life in others so uh, you know I, th I wouldn't be surprised if most people consider that at some stage but when I had my um, postnatal stuff I in the one sense the concerts the just the practicalities of the concerts were a lifeline because even if I was feeling very very low and very scared 
on a concert day, I have such a set routine now that I could sort of snap into that. So if the concert was at 7.30, at 3pm, I'd snap into doing my brain practice, I'd go off and do my rehearsal, and then I'd be in pre-concert mode. And for a few hours, I had a respite from, from this because I just had to focus on what I was doing. And it was a bit like that looking after the girls as well. Um, although they were such babies at the time that when you're looking after very young children, they are incredibly demanding, but you still have plenty of spare brain space to worry about other things. Whereas now they're five and three, they're talking to me all the time, and there's just not there's no chance to, to think <laughs> yeah. about anything else. I can't I can't be dwelling on my issues when I'm looking after them now in a way I could when they were babies. So the music, just the practicalities, were a lifeline at certain stages, and I think also now if I have. I haven't had a serious episode of anything remotely like that since I recovered from the postnatal depression. But when I had a little, I did have a little blip at the end of the um, the final lockdown, so around around March, April this year. And I think that was just a fairly normal response to the extended pandemic and the isolation and you know the loss of work and all that kind of stuff. But when I had that, the music, actually the act of playing and the act of practicing, that was wonderfully nourishing. And again, it's, it's not always. Sometimes it can be, it can feel like a, like a grind. But one thing I've realised, and through the the power that I've found music has to create, um, to create connections with people, is um, that it's so deeply embedded now as a sense of who I am and how I communicate and how I interact with the world. That I, it generally does tend to be nourishing now. Um, because I've I've accessed that communicative power in a communicative power in a really um, deep and rooted way, which is at the core of what music is for and what it's about. I'm just wondering, I'm completely shocked that you explain like the depth and and pain of your like mental illness and then say that you didn't cancel a concert. Like, I just, I'm really, I'm really kind of like, I don't know, really shocked, inspired, but at the same time thinking, is that, is that right? Like, should she feel she had to? Was it a feeling of, goodness, I have to do this, otherwise, you know, my profession will judge me, the audience will judge me? Was it anything to do with, like, judgment towards mental illness or lack of acceptance of mental illness? Or was it like, if I don't do this, I feel I'm going to get worse? Do you think that would have ever been a good idea to not to do a concert? Or did you feel pressure to do it from external sources? I would not advocate for anybody suffering from mental illness um, to try to do fulfil all of their engagements for the sake of it. I felt a very deep-seated personal pressure to do that. Okay. Um, but that was coming from me. And actually, that kind of pressure probably contributed a lot to the mental illness as well. So I was very keen after I had the girls, for example, to go back to work as soon as possible because I was concerned that, um, well, I love my work, but I was also concerned that people would be regard me as not serious about my career if I took to if I took a long time off to have babies and my husband and I had already decided that he would be the primary caregiver so it was possible for me to go back that early and not everyone is in that situation um and then from that point onwards I was it was almost as if I was on a mission to prove my commitment to my career for, for purely for my own sake really um but I perceived this kind of external pressure where there, there is external pressure to a certain degree, but it became an, an overriding motivating factor for me in a way that wasn't healthy. And that's a big thing that I still have to work really hard on is, is giving myself space and allowing myself to relax. I'm very, very bad at that. And I, I mean, I'm much better than I was 10 years ago, but I'm still pretty awful. <laughs> and, and that, I'm, I'm sure that's, that was a big part of how I exhausted myself so much that that things just started to fracture in the way they did. So mm-hmm. I certainly wouldn't advocate that. But it, it, it's really difficult to find that balance, particularly in a competitive profession where we often work alone. Even if you're playing in an orchestra or an ensemble, you still practice alone a lot of the time. Um, lots of people, lot our families, if you're not from a musical family, our friends from other walks of life, they don't really have any idea of what our lives involve. So it can feel very isolating. And I think it's it's really difficult to give yourself permission to take time off and to take care of yourself in the way that that you need um so I certainly wouldn't advocate trying to do what I did I don't think it was a sensible way of dealing with it right well thank you yeah thank you for clarifying that not that I I thought you wouldn't but just that I was thinking 
how like that it it almost kind of explains the extent of the suffering to which like do you know what I mean I mean I don't want to put words in your mouth but it's almost as if like if that was kind of the only thing that would make you feel as though you were on that you were keeping going I can totally understand why you would feel the compulsion to fulfill this because it's almost like if I stop then who am I then like I, I don't know if I'm making it up, make it like putting words in your mouth, but I've definitely felt that with my mental illness where it's been like, I, it's like, I often feel like I can't get that balance right of like, if I do this concert and push through, well, it make me feel like I've achieved something and I'm overcoming my mental illness. Or if I do that, will I kind of squeeze out the last drops of life that I, that I do have still, you know? <laughs> so I think you explained that really well. Yeah. I wonder whether... Um, do you, do you think being a soloist, I mean, I'm not a soloist, but I've heard that it's a very isolated at times career. And as you said, there's a lot of traveling. Do you think that being a soloist contributed more to the mental illness than perhaps if you were an orchestral or like, uh, yeah, an orchestral player, I guess. I don't know. I think there are different pressures regardless of what kind of career you you I mean in orchestral music there's there's the pressure to compete with you know with other people to get to get the jobs um touring is still I don't know how it is now post-pandemic but um touring sound from some of my friends in big orchestras the touring schedule they had to sound punishing um mm. so I I think it really varies and it depends so much on your personality type and individual the ways that we set up our lives individually and the way I experienced mental illness was very very interlinked with um as as you would expect with various personality traits and decisions that I've made to structure mm. the career as a so you know my career that I have as a soloist but um I think it it differs for different people and your response has to be personal and nobody can dictate mm. that but it's so it's so difficult to make that call as you were saying Hattie like do I do this concert because I feel like I've achieved something or do I take a break um and nobody can answer that but you and it's a really mm. really difficult, difficult call to make particularly I would say when I wasn't feeling very rational <laughs> anyway to to know how to how to judge that it's it's always a difficult balancing act I think I also wonder whether because you, you've talked also about on the concert day that you feel very disassociated um, or like disconnect, disconnected from your surroundings, and I, I definitely feel that as well. Um, you know, not not every time, but often when I'm really bad on a concert day, I feel very disconnected from everything. Um, and not that the audience's enjoyment of the concert should be our primary concern when we're balancing in our minds whether to do a concert, but I often feel like I'm struggling to. If I'm feeling so disconnected, it's hard for me to express or create that contrast within the music, like the extremes either way. And I just kind of flatline in the middle or I won't take the risks in the performance or I won't do the things that make it really special. And sometimes I just, yeah, I don't know whether you feel, maybe it's maybe because you, you're so used to your concert routine that you do just snap into it. But do you ever feel that through feeling disconnected that you're just giving a performance that's kind of disconnected as well I haven't to date I mean when I experience disconnection on the day of a concert it's usually a kind of background emotional state that just colors everything on the day but I tend to snap into it just before the concert starts and that might be a question mm. experience that I've just done so many of these now and I've had such a clear concert routine um, and also as a soloist you're often giving the same program uh, many times so mm. Um, so I have, I think, always felt connected during the performance itself. I found, and this is not directly connected with mental illness, although it was coloured by it when I was going through the depression, um, my disconnection on the day of the concert felt like a very kind of anti-adrenaline thing. So I'd get very low earlier mm. in the day and I'd be very flat and feel disassociated with what was going on around me and then just snap in back into concert mode about 7.25 when the adrenaline kicked in. Um, and it seemed to work for the performance, but it did make me pretty miserable on concert days. And I actually started, I've spent some time over the over this summer 
um, I've had three sessions with a sports psychologist, which has been really interesting because there's a lot written about sports psychology, but there's very little, as far as I can tell, on the psychology of performance. And there's so many parallels with what I've read. And actually just talking to a sports psychologist, and this is very much not talking about um, mental illness, but just talking about uh, the psychology of performance and trying to get into the right kind of state to give your best performance. That was a really interesting experience. And again, he approached it very much from a cognitive behavioral therapy point of view. Um, and there were some really powerful, useful techniques that I think would be really helpful for all musicians, but particularly if you're having a low day or if you're having some kind of difficulties um, with mental illness, it just gives you something to latch onto that stops the mental illness bleeding into your performance life, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Why did you decide, first of all, to write this article, to speak about your mental illness openly? And the other question is, why are you so few? Why are you one of so, so few soloists that are that are deciding to share in that way? I can understand why other people wouldn't want to. Um, firstly, I think the main thing is probably a generational thing. I think for the generation of others, it would have been much more difficult to talk about mental health in the way that we tend that we can now because there was so much more stigma attached to it and one of the interesting things about the article that I wrote for classical music was that afterwards I got a lot of correspondence from people and I got three or four messages from um, men in their 50s 60s 70s who had experienced really quite severe mental health difficulties but had not spoken to anyone about them and that just struck me it just seemed I don't know if it is a gendered thing I don't know if um, in the in an older generation, men felt more of pressure to um, seem like they all had it all together, or if there was more stigma associated with discussing anything emotional. But I just I just got the impression that it just it's not as easy for for an older generation to discuss this thing and I, this these kind of issues. And I know that I mean, talking to my my grandmother, for example, who's very very old now, she's a retired GP, and she announced the other day that she doesn't think mental health exists. I mean. People, <laughs> desperately helpful <laughs> sometimes don't, don't have the vocabulary or mm. you know and I mean I, I remember when I first thought that actually with the anxiety in my early 30s I thought maybe actually something was wrong on a pathological level and I was really quite unnerved by that because the idea of being mentally ill for me had such much more negative connotations than the idea of being physically ill we're all physically ill all the time mm. oh, often everyone has had experienced some kind of physical illness and we just don't have the um the vocabulary we're not as as literate emotionally to as we are in, in terms of our physical well-being often. so i think one of the main reasons i spoke i was able to speak about it when i did it was a generational thing and that just it's just possible to do that now in a way that it might not even have been 10 years ago i don't know um and the other reason i could speak about it when i did was because i had managed to do something concrete like with the prison concepts that um that i felt was a positive way of sort of uh, framing my mental illness like I, for me personally as well i could look back and say i went through this and it's given me strength that i've been able to use in other ways um and i wanted to talk about that because I thought it might help other people who'd experience mental illness but also I don't know it's difficult to explain as musicians we have to be so aware of our public image and how we come across to people so and it's very difficult to show weakness um and I, if I hadn't done the Prince of Con Prison Concerts and hadn't done something concrete with it I don't know if I would have felt that I could have spoken about it because I would have been I would have been worried then that people might not see it as a positive and obviously it wasn't very positive at the time, but um, positive things have come out of it. Um, so just from a purely vanity point of view as well, I was in a position where I could put a positive frame on it. And I don't I don't think I would have had the courage to speak about it, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know. I may not have mm. done it um, if I hadn't had the prison concerts as a sort of, you know, positive result. Um, so I completely understand why more people don't speak about it. It's, it's a difficult thing and you don't know how people are going to react. I didn't really know how how people would react at all. Uh, I was just lucky that I I felt I had the support from the people around me to do that. Do uh. so you don't feel that you've had any kind of negative response from it in terms of judgment or in terms of 
I don't know, people feeling like, I don't know how to put it. I suppose, as you say, like you've done it in such a careful way that even I think probably I've overshared in the wrong way sometimes. But <laughs> did you ever feel that like <laughs> you did have a negative response or a judgment or a backlash from work or from individuals? I've never, no one has ever said anything to my face. Mm. And I've not, I've not heard of anything on the grapevine. Mm. Um, it's possible that uh, one thing I am very aware of when I talk about it is not wanting to overshare. <laughs> yeah. Both, both, both to protect myself, but also because I, I wouldn't say I'm a self-effacing person. I don't think you can do what I do and be genuinely self-effacing, but I don't like to take up more space than I feel the music deserves. And I don't, but, um, but with this, I think, I think it is, it's really important. I mean, I just saw from the reaction to the classical music article that I wrote, for some people, it's really important just to know that they're not alone. And one of mm. the most debilitating mm. things about mental illness is that we're so unsure suddenly of our own personal identity and of the parameters of our own psyche and the way that we're experiencing the world. Um, and then to have an added burden of feeling that you're the only one or that you're in the minority or that something is specifically wrong with you. I mean, that's that's too much really for people to bear and it's completely unnecessary. I found that going to therapy and being in that sort of environment has definitely given me the right vocabulary to describe things in the right way without I don't know sometimes before I would find that I'd just say loads and loads of words just before until I found the right ones but by that time I'd already said loads of things I didn't really mean Mm -hmm. that I didn't really feel um so I definitely find found that therapy and yeah that vocabulary there helped me describe it to other people and in turn I think um I'm sure that people reading your article and listening to your interviews and how you talk about it will in turn give them a framework with which they can express themselves um I guess kind of like we as you were saying and as I would agree that we use music sometimes to um particularly for me when I am feeling mentally ill either the music really helps me or I can use it uh, sorry it doesn't help me or I can use it to sort of help me feel within a framework somehow without spinning out onto some kind of like you were saying with your your pedestal and everything else around Mm. it it can help help keep me on the pedestal um and I know that yeah you said that you can understand why people don't want to talk about it but is there anything that you think that could be done better in classical music or in the music industry in general? Um, do you think there's there are specific things that could be done to enable people to feel even more like they're not alone or even more capable to talk about how they're feeling? I don't know. It's quite a big it question. It is a big question and I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm kind of industry-wide questions because I work in such a specific area and I don't really know how large-scale organisations or initiatives or campaigns work. I have seen some really positive stuff coming out of the Musicians' Union, um, various campaigns to help people talk about mental health in a more positive way. And I do think a lot of people are becoming, and a lot of organisations are becoming more aware of the issues. And your point about feeling that you've got the vocabulary to discuss it, that's a really important one. And that you understand what's going on in your own head before you start talking to people. Because, again, it's very difficult difficult to talk about these issues if you don't even really understand what's going on within yourself um but in in terms of industry why i don't know i think keeping the conversation going and trying um different initiatives and just seeing where they take us i think there's some really been some really positive developments and it will be interesting to see how that how that goes over the next few years yeah absolutely thank you i was wondering because I've been doing a bit more contemporary music recently and I feel that my interest in it is always uh, increased when I've got stability. It's kind of like the stability of music. As long as I've got that in place, then I feel able to push the boundaries and step outside of the box with the contemporary music sometimes. Um, I, I wondered whether you'd be able to talk about where you're interested in more new music stemmed from um the contemporary music is something that i've i've 
always done but became much more important in my early 20s um i did the part lane group series which i think is still it is still running and um and i was very they were wonderful and gave me a lot of good opportunities early in my career and introduced me to lots of composers and i got my first recording project through the concert i did for them um and it just blossomed from there really i think contemporary music certainly the kind of contemporary music i've been drawn to has often been quite complex and i thrive on trying to create emotion and or to access emotion that the composers have, have, have written into the piece but despite the technical complexity sometimes it's just something that i find really satisfying it's a really interesting point that you make about the the way that you feel differently about contemporary music depending on how fragile you're feeling <laughs> sort of within yourself i haven't experienced anything like that but um but i can see how that how that might operate <laughs> but then sometimes if I'm feeling like a bit you know not mentally completely okay then actually contemporary music is the perfect way to express myself because it's it's not within a box mm. often so maybe maybe there there is no pattern for me I'm just trying to find parallels <laughs> um well I, I think, but no that's amazing I, I think that's interesting because I mean contemporary music has I do a wide range of repertoire historically um, but also within contemporary music. And there are so many uh, manifestly varied styles just within a very small time period that express all extremes of the human condition. And it's it's interesting. I suppose I do have a different perspective on some of those, given what I've experienced mentally over the past few years. Um, and it's, it's, it is really interesting. It doesn't happen very often, but it's quite a special experience to go back to a piece that I did a lot maybe 10 years ago and then suddenly find that I've I can access new depths and I've got a new perspective on it because of those experiences I mean that happens with any lived experience but because the mental illness can be quite extreme um sometimes it that can sort of operate in a more profound way so that that's been another interesting um aspect that I hadn't really been aware of before <laughs> so thank you <laughs> no thank you I'm wondering as well actually you talked about um, being more open in prisons, in female prisons. And I'm wondering, have you ever talked about your mental illness with a sort of traditional classical audience? I mean, I can't really imagine necessarily a situation where you might, but have you ever mentioned, like, I don't know, <laughs> that, that this is something you struggle with, not in a prison setting or not in an interview or you know have you ever shared that with an audience is what I'm trying to ask sorry I'm yeah no I, I have <laughs> it's not something I would bring up normally in the course of a standard recital so uh -huh. yeah, but I've yeah. done um one I did a concert for the Chilton Arts Festival very soon after the uh after the performances started again so that must have been in May this year and they asked me to do a concert that was linked to I can't remember the exact theme now but it was linked to the work I done in prisons and the and, wow. and of course, to talk about, I mean, I was in, I was doing a standard recital, but my spoken introductions were slight, slightly longer. And these, the pieces I chose were significant in some way that related to the prison work and the difficulties that I had with mental health. And that was quite interesting because that was the first time I'd spoken about these issues in a more traditional environment and with a traditional audience. And again, the difficulty I had while thinking about what to say was to make sure that I didn't overshare because I didn't know how experienced the audience would be obviously an audience of 100 150 people there's a there'll be a vast array of life different lived experiences there so you can't make generalizations but i i didn't really know um how how aware they'd be of the vocabulary of this these kind of conditions and i didn't want to overshare in that context so i really kept it very minimal but it was i was struck by the response which was broadly very positive. And then um, a couple of people came up to me afterwards and were, had clearly been very moved. And again, I think that was, it was to do with the feeling that they weren't alone because they both said that they'd had similar experiences of various kinds. We didn't have enough time after the concert to talk about it in any detail, so I don't know. But it's that that idea of being seen or not feeling alone is so important and it's so cathartic mm -hmm. for people. Um, and very, very, very often when I do talk about these issues, that's the primary response that I get from from the people who've been most moved um, is yeah. that 
they, they've experienced this and it's somehow a great relief to hear someone else express it. Because um, mm. I, I actually did a, a concert with my piano trio and I found myself introducing the second half and found myself somehow talking about how I discovered this piece that we played, which is a new piece that I discovered the composer basically whilst I was in the middle of mental illness. And I said it was the first time I'd felt anything in three months. You know, I, I was feeling, I literally could not feel. I had one of those, just not being able to feel anything. And I remember hearing this composer's music and feeling something for the first time. And I shared that with them. And while I was saying, while the words were coming out of my mouth, I was like, why are you saying this? Like, I wasn't like <laughs> you. I hadn't planned it at all. I was just like, oh, for goodness sake, like, why, why? And, like, you know, the whole time I was playing, I was like, why did you share that? Oh, my gosh. I just had this massive, like, hangover of, like, what is the backlash going to be? What's everyone going to think? This is so awkward. I've made it all about me now. It's not about the composer. Like... Um, but then, as you say, like after the concert, I got two emails. I had a couple people come up to me and say, like, what it meant that I just mentioned it. And I, that's why I asked you because I was thinking, like, if this, if it's like literally just mentioning it, it has such a response, like, mm. almost in the way I don't want to overdo it. Obviously, I don't want to kind of come go to every concert and mention it because that is a little bit tedious. But in a way, like, I really want moments like that to be more normal and to be more like commonplace i do think there's a place for it um mm. you, you just have to do it in a way that that you feel safe and for me part of that is being in control and sort of pre-planning but if you can, <laughs> if you can do it in a specific way and if, if you feel i think, I, think I can always plan more to be honest like <laughs> in general i'd love to hear though before we finish just any concerts or any projects you have coming up that you're allowed to share or would like to share what what's the future looking like for you so um, my next big project is a recording of etudes by a composer called Hélène de Montjuïc, who's a French composer, a contemporary of Mozart. Um, but she wrote in a style that was massively ahead of her time, and it's much closer to Mendelssohn and Schumann, really, in spirit than it is to her contemporaries. Um, and the music is just astonishing. So I'm I'm really excited about that. Um, recording a disc of preludes by Adam Gorb that he's written for me, and a piece called Velocity that he wrote for me about six years ago. Um, so that's another big contemporary project and gearing up for for the next recital season really so revisiting works by Metner I'm doing a sonatina by Doreen Carwiven and a piece called Bells by William Grant Still um, and some Beethoven <laughs> so it's quite, mm. quite a so not much <laughs> I was thinking that I was like wow oh okay <laughs> Claire thank you so much um, for joining yeah, thank us you. oh my that's goodness no it just means so much to have someone that's willing to speak as openly and in as much detail and everything as you are so thank you so so much for that thank you it's great to meet you both